Welcome in. How is everybody doing today? Best wishes to everyone having a birthday, an anniversary. Memorial and holidays and celebrations of all kinds this time of the year. Best wishes. in the Bible told his disciples to forgive one another 70 times 70 
about punishment, revenge, hate. It spirals on and never ends. We can never end, reach the bottom of our certain foods or drinks that we could never tolerate the first time or maybe even the tenth time we tasted or or even smell it or even see it. So things happen with time. Sheep in the mist 
of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as a dove. Matthew 10, 16, quote. To my mind, Innocence is a tool and a skill.
Timothy Murray coming to you from Miami, Florida. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest and a true friend, Dr. Michael Jumper, who comes to us from West Coast Retina. He is in San Francisco, California, and an expert on retina care of his patients. Today, we're going to focus on what you can do as a patient to have a better outcome with your retina specialist. And I think Mike is exactly the person we want to talk to about this. So welcome, Dr. Jumper. Thank you, Dr. Murray. It's good to be here. It's really a pleasure to have you. So, Dr. Jumper, I know that, you know, you like, like I have a very busy clinical practice. Um, and one of the things we're trying to look at with our patients is how can we empower our patients to better understand what they can do to take better care of themselves? Could you tell us a little bit about when you think a patient should ask to see a retina specialist and give us an understanding of how they would do that? Great. Um, that, that's an important question. I think that uh, our patients um, have very little understanding, for the most part, uh, of what is going on inside their eye, uh, as do most other physicians and other people in the country. I just think that the, uh, the eye is complex and the education around the physiology of the eye is, is not that great. And so uh, what we have to do is basically, I think, work to educate our patients uh, as early as we can on how the eye and in particular the retina works. And I think that that will help them to understand the problems that can go on in the eye and better understand the problem that's happening in their eye. Uh, I think that if they understand also the symptoms of retinal diseases, which uh, there are many different potential diseases, but many of them have similar symptoms, uh, those, if by knowing those symptoms, I think that we can also uh, empower our patients to uh, ask for care appropriately. So, for instance, the symptoms of, say, a retinal tear or a retinal detachment, including many new floaters in your vision, flashing lights with eye movement in dark conditions, or a veil or curtain that comes into your vision. Uh, those symptoms everybody should know about because just like the symptoms, knowing about the symptoms of a heart attack or other a stroke, uh, these are symptoms uh, that I think we all should be aware of so that we can seek care appropriately. Um, the, uh, the times when a patient should be going and talking to their primary care provider uh, for potential retinal consultation are those times in a diabetic, uh, patients who have new vision symptoms, uh, as well as uh, patients who may have a family history of known inherited retinal conditions, of which there are many. I think that those are some examples of times when the patient might want uh, to, to take the initiative to seek retinal care. And one of the things we've talked about with the American Society of Retina Specialists is that we have access to um, the opportunity to, to look by your zip code or your city or the name of a doctor that you know to find your retina specialist. And virtually every retina specialist in the United States and within North America is a member of this society. So you can go to find your retina specialist and by Googling that, get an opportunity to find a retina specialist that's near you. And I think that opportunity to find the doctor yourself is incredibly helpful. I agree. I think that that service provided by the American Society of Retina Specialists has been one of the most used 
uh, of all the services that are provided. And it is a wonderful thing that every retina specialist in the United States, as well as in other countries, uh, are members of the ASRS. And that, I think, has helped everyone to better understand who's around them that could help. So I think from a patient's perspective, you need to know when you should be looking for a retina specialist and you should know how to find a retina specialist. So you, you know that you need to see a retina specialist. You found the right doctor. What can our patients do on their first visit and their follow-up visits to, to make the most of their visit and potentially do the best to preserve or improve their sight? Well, the first thing is going to and following up on those visits. That's uh, very important uh, when you have uh, a, an appointment uh, for these eye conditions uh, to kind of keep those appointments. We've learned this during this COVID pandemic when, unfortunately, many patients were not able uh, to get in and seek retinal care. And uh, there was a lot of vision lost uh, as a result of that. And so I think it is very important to, first of all, keep and, and follow up uh, as directed. On top of that, I think it's very important to come sort of prepared uh, to listen uh, for these at these appointments and really uh, try to kind of best understand as you can, you know, the condition that's going on in your eye and uh, really try to be engaged in what you as the patient can do uh, for, uh, moving forward. Some of those things include uh, ch checking your own vision and monitoring your vision for changes. Uh, they also uh, include using the medications that have been prescribed to you appropriately and uh, continuing with them, sticking with it. It's always the case where using the drop uh, for a week, you know, might help a little bit and you feel like you might not need it anymore, but really sticking with the, tr the plan uh, long term is uh, one of the things that I think is very important. So, you know, these, the, you know, kind of the stick sticking with it is really, I think, one of the more uh, important issues in uh, retinal care. I think that's important. So additionally, I like my patients to do two other things. I like them to kind of write questions down if they have a question, because I think most of us immediately upon seeing the doctor, our mind is almost a blank and it's really hard to, to focus on what those questions were. And then the second thing is, I think it's also helpful when you go to your exam, if you have a complicated diagnosis, um, bring someone with you. Um, in, in COVID, there were some practices where you couldn't have another person with you, but I think we're moving away from that now to allow people to have the, a family member or a caregiver with them to have a second set of ears listening to what's being said. So do you do that in your practice also? Absolutely. And it was, uh, there was a time when trying to minimize the number of people that were in our office that we did try to you know, minimize the number of people, but we usually had, uh, especially for those patients who may not have uh, the ability to understand as well, uh, we would have patients, uh, uh, advocates or family members come with them so that they could also listen. Uh, we also used sort of a conference call format, you know, at times in which we would put somebody on the phone uh, in the office when the patient was there so that we could all be uh, kind of talking about it together. Lastly, uh, we are able to provide many times an electronic record of our visit, uh, either right then or soon thereafter. And so providing that is somewhat helpful. It does have some more technical jargon as we're communicating with other physicians, but uh, most of the information 
is uh, quite helpful for the patient and they will understand it uh, with a little bit of questioning later. It's, it's almost like I use that first uh, initial uh, referral uh, form or the, the uh, first medical record is almost the template for them to ask questions in follow-up visits. I think that's important. I think that, you know, in the past, patients may have had limited access to their own records, but I believe that virtually every retina practice now has the opportunity for the patients to either access their records electronically or have their records printed at the time of the visit. So when one of the two things we do with our patients is we ask them to get printouts of their, of their note from their visit so that they have a written copy for themselves so they can look at it later. Um, and then the second thing that we do is we have them schedule their next appointment before they leave um, in the hopes that the patient doesn't walk out the door and, and know they need to come back but has a problem reaching the office or scheduling the appointment. So I think we're all working together to, to provide sort of that integrated ongoing care for our patients that they participate actively in. I, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, when the, when a patient is engaged and they're the ones asking about, hey, when's my next appointment or, uh, you know, how did I do on this test? You know, I have a feeling that that patient is going to have a better outcome because they, be, by being engaged, I think that it helps uh, their care plan tremendously. One of the things that really became clear through the pandemic is how these delays in care where a patient couldn't get to you um, really impact the potential outcome. And you mentioned how much vision was was potentially lost and, and in many of our patients truly lost because of those delays. We've seen patients where missing the appointment by even a week can have an impact on both the anatomy and the visual function. So I think that, that it's hard sometimes for patients to think that a couple of days can make such a big difference, but we try to push hard to let the patient understand that these visit dates are, are really critical for ongoing care. I agree. I, I know that I'm sure that you've had the same experience where uh, patients who were on a, a treatment schedule, particularly for macular degeneration, in which uh, they've fallen off that schedule. And there are many reasons that that could happen, uh, this pandemic being a big one. Uh, but, you know, really sad outcomes from uh, not being able to return uh, for treatment. And I think that patients need to realize the importance. Uh, we all become a little bit uh, uh, blasé about how miraculous these medicines are, especially for macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and retinal vein occlusion, and how uh, really effective they are, but how uh, vital they are to maintain vision and that this is, I tell my patients, this is not like giving an antibiotic for an infection in which you kill the bacteria and the infection's gone and you don't even have to think about it again. This is more like using insulin for diabetes. It's maintaining things. It's keeping you uh, seeing, but it is not curing the problem. And I think that, that sort of uh, way of, of conveying that is helpful for patients because they better understand that we're uh, doing a treatment for maintenance mainly. I think that's all that's I think that's all critical for the patient to understand because they're kind of like, well, my vision's not improving. I had a patient today that was 2020 and she was she was like, when is my vision going to be better? And I go, I go, you're 2020. I mean, what we're doing here is preserving that vision. That's phenomenal. I go, this is a condition with macular degeneration that before these injection therapies, you'd be blind. 
Um, so I, I do think that part of this is educating our patients as to what to expect. And I think when you're in the middle of a treatment course with a doctor that goes on and on and on, it becomes really almost even more important to explain why we're doing this because the patient doesn't always see the benefit because they've already achieved really good vision, if you're lucky. Well, you and I are, are mature and experienced enough to know a time when there was no anti-VEGF or injection therapies for especially macular degeneration. And so uh, we have patients, I do, and I'm sure you do, who in one eye lost vision and are blind because they didn't have the available treatments then when they had macular degeneration come on. And in the second eye, they do have uh, excellent vision oftentimes because they were receiving the treatments that we now have available. And so those are the patients that really appreciate uh, the, the treatments and uh, really don't, uh, don't uh, uh, gripe too much about having only 2030 or 2040 vision or even 2020 vision. They know what it can be like without. And thankfully for us, we're not seeing as many of those patients because when we're treating the first eye, we're getting such good outcomes often that the patients aren't having these blind eyes that we saw prior to anti-VEGF therapy. So I think in your office also, you use large um, formats for showing, for example, the OCT, the scans of the patient and letting them kind of participate in looking at those scans. I found the ability to show the patient what the eye looked like last visit and this visit is particularly empowering for the patients to understand their care. I, I totally agree. The imaging that we have now is unbelievable. And uh, some of that imaging, uh, in particular, optical coherence tomography or OCT is done extremely frequently on our patients because it is so powerful in both uh, showing us the response to treatment uh, when retreatment is necessary, but it's also an incredible education tool. Patients who have had uh, multiple treatments and multiple imaging uh, studies oftentimes are the ones that can tell that things are better or worse or uh, the same because I just show them the pictures, pull them up, and they, they already know uh, how those pictures are supposed to look and when things are worse. And so, yes, I think that, uh, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. Those pictures are very easy to understand after you kind of, uh, you know, ha after you've had a condition and been treated for a while and seen many of them. And I think it's really wonderful uh, that we have that tool for our patients. And then the other area where I see patients really um, potentially empowered here is to understand why they're on their medications and what those medications can do for them. So particularly for patients that have higher eye pressures where they have to have the eye pressures controlled with glaucoma meds, those meds, you know, maybe one or two or three times a day. And, and we're not with the patients from that visit from one month to the next. So it seems that that's also an area where understanding the importance and coming up with a routine or an approach to use your medications can be incredibly beneficial for the patient when they're between visits and still have ongoing at-home care. What do you do in your office for that? Well, I agree. I think that, you know, in our, uh, in our practice, you know, we do have people, many people on drops, and we uh, have many different ways of trying to uh, encourage uh, the patients to use those medicines. Uh, we certainly ask every time and reiterate the importance of use of 
these medicines and basically let them know what the consequences might be uh, by not using the medicines. Uh, also, we want the process of getting refills and uh, getting the medicines as easy as it can be. Uh, we try to you know, use medicines by working with their particular insurance formulary medicines that aren't going to cost them a lot of money. And we try to obtain help when we can't uh, find a medicine that, you know, doesn't have some sort of copay uh, associated with it. I mean, we're just trying to lower the, the bar for the, the, the things that uh, keep the patient from wanting to take the medicine. And, you know, finding uh, all these different ways of doing so is, I think, helpful. I think in many ways it's so easy for the patient to find a reason not to come for the appointment or not to pick up the medication refill or not to use the drop. And, and so, so much of this, um, in terms of the outcome for vision and function, is really totally focused on what the patient does out of our office. So I really think that's one of the things that we don't, we don't talk about enough with the patients is how important what they do for their own care is for them. So we've talked about measure your vision one eye at a time, looking for central distortion, flashing lights, floating spots, curtain-like changes in vision. But you know, the other thing I think that that's important for our patients is to understand that the eye is just part of their entire body. So I know that you spend time talking to your patients about things they can do with their general health. You mentioned following the hemoglobin A1C for a diabetic patient. What else do you do? Do you counsel on smoking? What about vitamin therapies? If a patient's heavy or they or they drink significantly, do you have a discussion regarding those aspects of, of their general health? Absolutely. I think that um, in uh, my practice and in, in most retina specialist practice, you know, you have become the doctor that the patient oftentimes sees more than even their primary care doctor. Uh, if I have a patient with age-related macular degeneration needing treatment, I will see them way more than any other doctor that they have. And by doing so, you can develop a pretty nice relationship with a patient such that you learn, you know, what their habits might be, good and bad. You learn, uh, you know, what sorts of things might be influencing uh, their outcomes. And so uh, I think that it's very important that over the time I get to know patients, uh, particularly in those first visits, that I make sure that they understand how vital, you know, all the things that they uh, can do towards their heart health is also the things that they are, can do towards their eye health. Health. I think that uh, it's very important for them to know that controlling their blood pressure, their blood sugar, their cholesterol uh, reduces their risk of blinding eye disease. And that's the kinds of things that can empower them most particularly not smoking. It's been great in this country that we've seen a, a real reduction in smoking rates, but there are still way too many people smoking. And the uh, cigarette smoking, we know, uh, increases the risk of going blind from conditions like macular degeneration by fivefold as much. And so uh, by, by reducing or eliminating smoking, we can, we can really have such a big impact on our patient's vision. And I would say that, uh, you know, spending time with patients like we do as retina specialists and talking to them uh, is very helpful.
I agree with you. I find it amazing to think about the fact that we are the physicians often seeing these patients more than anyone else. Um, and that comes with the, what we talk about as a treatment burden. But in many ways, it's a patient opportunity. I think the patients get to develop a rapport with us. They can ask us questions that maybe they wouldn't ask their other physicians. Um, and, they, and they know that they're going to see us over and over again. So this isn't like many of the, for example, other surgical procedures where you do a procedure and somebody else takes care of the patient. For the most part, if you and I operate on the patient or we're injecting a patient, there are patients often for life, right? Agreed. It's one of the great things about our specialty. I, I, I think that, you know, developing these really strong uh, relationships with the patients uh, in which we really have an impact on their entire health is, is what I really like about uh, the field of retina. I agree. It's kind of exciting. And we've come so far with the imaging and the treatments for our patients. And, you know, it's, it's been a game changer because when I started practicing, patients didn't get access directly to their medical records. And often they didn't have the opportunity to directly question their, their retina specialist. I think it's been really um, a, a more sort of cohesive, integrated approach to the care of our patients. And I think that's been one of the big game changers. We're seeing patients have vision in the, when in the past you and I both know that, that they would have none. It's, it's, it's phenomenal how far this field has come for our patients. But I think it's critically important the patient understands that they drive a lot of what happens for their care. And, and that's what I'm hoping that with our discussion today, that, that we can pass that on to the patients to empower them to be more actively involved in their care also. Thanks for tuning in to Redden Health for Life from the President's Corner. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. For even more information about safeguarding your vision for a lifetime, visit asrs.org slash patients and follow ASRS on both Facebook and Twitter. Retina Health for Life is made possible in part through generous support from the Foundation of the American Society of Retina Specialists, Allergan, Genentech, Novartis, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. See you soon.
disturb them again. Okay, we're going to, and I can stop erase this anytime. I'm here at this wonderful ladies. I'm here at this wonderful ladies store in her shop. How's everyone tonight? Welcome in, welcome everyone. It's been a busy month, so we're going to jump right in. Tonight we're going to talk about the beautiful clothing, jewelry, and is it true uh, I can get beautiful clothing here in, in uh, California on Artesia Boulevard in South Bay? Do you, can you give us more information about that? Of course I can give you more information about that. Actually, the Artesia Boulevard in um, not Artesia Boulevard, the Pioneer Boulevard in city of Artesia, you go there, you'll see the Indian and Pakistani dresses one after another. The shops is setting over there beside the street in the both, both of the side of the street. And there you'll find some wonderful, delicious Indian restaurant. It will be like, it's a little India. And you go there, you'll find the dresses, the accessories, the jewelry, the shoes, the the Indian handbags, like those are customized for ladies. And most of the people who are living far from here, from Arizona, from Texas, from uh, Atlanta, from different, different states, when the Indian people, they have their wedding on their family, what they do, they come up here and they grab the whole setup for the wedding like for their for the bride for the groom mom dad aunt auntie niece nephew for every single person the bride mates the groom mates for everybody and if you're lucky enough in any time in daytime when you go there you may find one of the group of avoiding uh, team over there and they're like a bunch of people together from one family like us eight or ten people together and they're just like uh, they're like uh, chirping like birds like they want this that this that and then you know the food definitely you should try the food over there and there is a there is a very popular restaurant name is surati farsan mart please 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 everybody try their dishes each and every single one i cannot name a single one because you try one after another you'll be like okay you can never be spot one dish that is like number one everything is better than each other one quick question just one quick question would you please spell that name of that business surety so that we can go online and maybe make reservations or at least get to the proper directions and know where we're going? Mm -hmm. Yes, the store name is Surati Farsan Mart. And I'm going to spell it for you guys. It's S-U-R-A-T-I and then space and then F 
A R S A N and then space and then M A R T and I'm here my name is Maha I'm talking from Westfield Culver City Mall and my I have a little booth here my booth name is uh, Dream of Dazzle Jewelry and my business name is Glitz and Glamour but if you can come anytime in my store uh, I can do a very good piercing ear nose piercing and I have so many choices of Indian jewelry here please visit me in Westfield Culver City Mall on the second floor in front of Zoomies and my name is Maha you can come up anytime and to make an appointment for your beautiful ear piercing or nose piercing or if you need any kind of service for your piercing please visit us anytime and thank you yes would you, would you please spell your business name and then I'll spell zoomies she's right outside of this clothing store zoomies clothing store z-u-m-e-z -E is that right Z-U-M-I-E-Z. It's Z-U-M-I-E-Z. Zoomies. on the second level of the Westfield Mall. It's, um, you can enter the mall parking, I guess, off of Green Valley Circle. And you can turn on Fox Hills Drive and enter the parking. You can go to, um, the Sepulveda Boulevard and Slauson Avenue. It, it's a huge, it's a huge Westville Mall. It covers um, Sepulveda one side, Sepulveda Boulevard one side, near the and 405, yeah. uh -huh, near the 405 freeway in Green Valley. There's a gas station there, mobile gas station there. Then on the Slauson Avenue side, um, you could, I believe you can get into the mall from that side. You might have to make a, a, a right turn or left turn off of uh, Slauson Avenue by the Marina Del Rey Freeway and turn uh, real quick into the uh, little side streets there and then into the parking lot there, but it's a big mall, the Westfield Mall, you can't miss it. It's in Culver City, in uh, the west side of Los Angeles, Westfield Fox Hills Mall. And she's here piercing ears. She does a lovely job. She even uh, touched up mine. They were with, they were un, uh, Un, on their way to being unpierced. I mean, they were pierced, but they needed touch-up, and she did the touch-up. She did a, a beautiful job with mine, professional, very professional job. So be sure and come to her booth number. Do you have a booth number? Actually, people, um, everybody who is listening to us, um, if I give you the booth number, it's not actually possible to find out, figured out. The best possible way to figure out the booth is it's on the level second. It's on the second floor in front of the Zoomies and in front of the Journeys. And you can come all the way from Macy's. And if you come down here, you'll see a little booth. My business name is 
dream of Dazzle Jewelry which is D-R-E-A-M space O-F space J-E-W-E-L-R-Y and I'm very very uh, specialized on piercing and any kind of service of piercing if you have any kind of old wound any kind of uh, pain any kind of swollen or if your um, piercing is infected please visit me I will change your reality of your piercing thank you so much and you did a beautiful job thank you and I so will come much. back in about a week so you can check my ears to make sure everything is going Perfect. well and just to look at your beautiful uh, it's called true of jewel truth of jewelry dream of dazzle jewelry oh dream of dazzle jewelry okay and like she said she's outside of zoomies she's along the same uh the, there's a a ramp that you can walk straight from macy's over to, down this ramp and she's right at the end of the ramp once you leave that uh, corner, that wall where Macy's is. If you're over on that side, that's the third level. If you're on the second level and you leave, you leave uh, T-Mobile or Seize Candies and you just walk, oh, maybe 50 feet, 100 feet, she will be along this side. She will be the only kiosk you know she's not in a big brick and mortar store she has her own small kiosk with lots and lots of beautiful indian jewelry so you'll find her to be a very very people person a very uh, uh easy easy to understand what you need what you need done she'll t explain everything to, and do everything to your satisfaction. So she's a very highly professionally trained uh, businesswoman. So <laughs> I'm a piercing specialist. <laughs> Business is uh, not the main focus for me. My main focus is to um, make make my um, my my clients beautiful. Yes, I believe that when I told her about her own, she could have her own podcasting and uh, tell everyone about her business, uh, she, she automatically said she just wants to teach everyone. She didn't want uh, to get rich or anything, so it's not about all the money for her. So come and meet this one-of-a-kind jewelry business owner. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much. I'm so glad and I'm so uh, lucky today to have you here. Okay. And thank you for joining us on our, on our journey today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast. And as soon as her podcast is ready, I will post it so that everybody can listen in on her podcast. Okay, thank you. Stay safe. Take care of yourself. Okay, now see you.
Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. Jeremiah 17 and 9. Quote, the heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? everyone online at https colon slash slash blog blog dot search evaluator s e a r c h e v a l u A-T-O-R dot com slash work dash at dash home dash sites. There's quite a bit of information about different work at home opportunities. two sites or GP two sites some of them offer very low low pay some of them offer medium pay some offer bonuses and gifts gift cards There's one here called Y Sense. The letter Y, capital S E N S E, Y Sense, is one of the most reputable and popular online rewards websites. From all the sites on this list, it is probably the one with the most opportunities available besides paying for your honest opinion across a huge range of topics. Why, since we'll top up your earnings with carefully curated freebies, competitions, free trials, games to play, and more. Offers are a great way to discover new sites and services that will pay you to use them. 
was Y since the letter Y capital S E N S E. Next the next one survey junkie as the name suggests survey junkie will pay you for taking surveys to participate you must be 13 years or older and live in one of the following countries US Canada or Australia next one American consumer opinion will get you paid for answering surveys evaluating new products or advertisements and voting on products or services offered by their clients task availability is higher for participants from the US Canada the UK Germany and France there's many many more some of them require the person interested in the online job to study their guidelines take a test and pass the test with a minimum score of whatever they require and if you go to the blog I'll put it in the show notes if you go to this blog check on one that you're interested in check around on their website and see if there's a drop down menu that has the word or something that says guidelines some will not have that so they're easier to um to sign up some have long waiting lists and so you may or may not want to be on a long waiting list
But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over.
one of the great Americans of our time, Dr. Martin Luther King. Our conversation with him will begin after this brief message. Dr. King, I want to thank you very deeply for taking time out from an arduous schedule to come to New York and do this program with me tonight. Thank you. I'd like to begin by asking you, what significance does the Birmingham story, the Birmingham struggle that has just been concluded, have, in your view, on the overall Negro-white struggle in the United States? Well, I think it has a great significance in that Birmingham has been, for many years, the symbol of hardcore resistance to desegregation. And I would say it has been the toughest city in the country in race relations. It's been the most thoroughly segregated city in, in America. It has had uh, a terrible record of police brutality, and there have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than any other city. Now, in the movement, in the particular movement that took place, I think we were able to dramatize the indignities and the injustices which Negroes confront in Birmingham and other places in the hardcore South. And by doing this, I think we were able to bring the issue so much to the surface that everybody could see it. And after we reached the point of getting basic agreements from the economic power structure, uh, I think it said to people all over, that the barriers or the walls of segregation are crumbling in Birmingham and they can crumble anywhere. By tackling the most difficult city, it seems to me that we were able to give impetus to other movements and say to people everywhere that it's just a matter of time now. I wonder if you believe, Dr. King, that the Birmingham issue, the Birmingham violence, was the specific trigger which has... Uh, set off the explosions around the country, north and south. Uh, was, it, was its violence, uh, the attack on children, the use of police dogs and police truncheons, uh, were those the triggers that have ignited Englewood, New Jersey, and other southern communities and other northern communities more than any other incident to date? Well, I, I think it's a combination of two things. Uh, I think on the one hand, the large number of people who engaged in the demonstrations had something to do with it. In fact, more people were arrested for standing up for civil rights in Birmingham than any other city in the country. Uh, some 3,200 were arrested. So I think the mass quality of the movement had its arousing effects and uh, its repercussions in other communities, along with the indignities of the brutality and the violence perpetrated against Negroes. I think these two things uh, arouse Negroes all over the country and all people of goodwill for that matter. And uh, I'm sure that things that are happening in other communities, North and South, uh, at this very time, uh, to a large extent came into being as a result of the mass quality of the movement in Birmingham and the violence perpetrated against Negroes. Dr. King, subsequent to the uh, Birmingham situation, we have read a lot about the behind-the-scene maneuvering of uh, the Attorney General Robert Kennedy and Mr. Burke Marshall. How effective 
was our Justice Department, and specifically Mr. Kennedy and Mr. Marshall, in effecting a final resolution in Birmingham. You were on the scene. You were the pivot of the action. How effective were they? Well, I would say that uh, they, they were quite effective in at least making it possible for us to have open channels of communication. Uh, we had not had any real dialogue prior to the coming of, of uh, Mr. Mark Burke Marshall. We had made some approaches and some attempts had been made to open negotiations, but it never got off the ground. And I do think that uh, with uh, the coming of the Justice Department and Mr. Marshall in the picture, uh, some channels of communication open that wouldn't have opened as soon. Now, I'm sure they would have eventually opened because of the persistent uh, power of those engaged in the movement. But uh, I think it helped to bring it about earlier. Were they, in your view, Dr. King, late in anticipating the extent of the violence? Were they, uh, were they delinquent in getting there soon enough? Well, I think they could have gotten there sooner. All along, we had uh, called the Justice Department, uh, I mean, called to the attention of the Justice Department many of the things that were taking place that were uh, symptoms of grave uh, injustices. And uh, we had many things happening. And in fact, the whole process, we felt, was uh, a tragic deprivation of basic constitutional rights. And we constantly call these to the attention of the Justice Department. And How did they respond? At first, uh, they said that there was nothing that they could do because uh, constitutional questions were not involved. Or at least uh, the Attorney General did not have uh, the power, the legislative power, the power backed up by the legislative branch of government to move in. Uh, the Attorney General has the power to move in and initiate suits in the area of uh, voting rights uh, when denials are made in that area, but uh, they contended that they had no power in the other areas. And uh, it went on like this until uh, things uh, started getting out of hand in terms of the violence on the part of the police force. And this is when they came in the situation. I wanted to ask you, in your view, is the Negro community of the United States aflame as never before? And is the uh, suspicion or the fear of some that we are on a collision course between the impatience of the Negro and the uh, procrastination of the white community, is that fear well-grounded? Well, I think there is uh, no doubt about the fact that uh, the Negro is more determined now than ever before to be free. I think that that is a discontent in the Negro community, a frustration and an impatience, if we can use that word, uh, that we haven't seen before. I've been around the country for the last few days uh, speaking for freedom rallies, and I don't think I've ever seen uh, the Negro population of our nation more aroused and more determined, as I've seen on these particular trips. And uh, I think it has reached the point now that there will be no stopping point short of justice and freedom. And I think the, the great challenge ahead 
is to for the people of goodwill to see that the Negro is through with tokenism, through with gradualism, and through with uh, see how far you've comeism. And uh, he's determined now to gain these basic rights which have been guaranteed by the Constitution and God-given rights, and yet they've not been carried out. It's, it really grows out of uh, blasted hopes because we all uh, responded to the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 with, uh, with a great sense of hope. This came to us as a great beacon light of hope. And uh, yet after eight years or more, we've come to see that integration has moved about 1% a year of students a year. And moving at this pace, it will take 92 more years to integrate the schools, the public schools of the South. And then outside of the South, we see de facto segregation growing every day. The ghetto continues to exist and the endless frustrations uh, that develop as a result of economic deprivation and, and social isolation uh, will naturally cause uh, the kind of discontent that we now have in the Negro community. And I think it is colliding uh, with another force that must ultimately give and recognize the urgency of the moment. Do you fear that if the pace of desegregation and integration is not sufficiently swift, that violence is inevitable, and that your own nonviolent movement may be overridden by the militancy of the Negro community? Well, realism impels me to admit that uh, if we cannot speed up the process, so to speak, if we can't move on and break down these barriers of segregation and discrimination, uh, out of frustration and despair, uh, many Negroes may turn to, to violence and, and other courses of action that they wouldn't uh, ordinarily uh, respond to, that they wouldn't ordinarily uh, use as a technique. And uh, I think there is an urgency about the situation uh, and I think if the nonviolent movement uh, is not supported, uh, and if there are not attempts made at every hand to give support to those who are trying to work out something through the creative channel of nonviolence, then it may open the door for the more extremist groups to come in and uh, really take over to the point that they will serve as the outlet for many Negroes who become desperately impatient. Dr. King, we've been led to believe the president is preparing a civil rights message, proposing new legislation. If this legislation is watered down or insufficient for the Negro purposes, or it is killed in filibuster in the Senate, what would be the aftermath, in your opinion, among the Negro people in this country? I think the aftermath would be a deeper frustration, uh, a deeper discontent, which would inevitably lead to deeper bitterness on the part of many Negroes. And uh, with this kind of bitterness emerging, uh, it can develop into a very explosive situation. I mean explosive in terms of violence 
And uh, I must make it clear that I'm not advocating this and I'm not predicting this, but I'm trying to uh, analyze the problem realistically and honestly. I think if uh, we don't get a strong civil rights uh, message and proposal from the president, and if we don't get an actual implementation of it on the part of Congress, uh, we will see ourselves in, in a deeper situation of chaos. And uh, I think that this, is, uh, this makes it even more urgent for the forces of goodwill to really work hard to, to get it through. Uh, this is why I've said in recent days that uh, uh, it's unfortunate that the president may be out of the country during the period when so many forces need to be mobilized and when the tremendous weight and prestige of the president will be needed to mobilize these forces because I'm sure the South is thinking now in terms of talking the bill away, filibustering, and this will be tragic, it will be unfortunate, and uh, I think it can lead to a darker night of terror. Dr. King, are you optimistic about the, uh, the effectiveness of the upcoming message? Will it, in your view, in terms of the political insights you have, will it be sufficient in, its, uh, in what it asks of the Congress? And are you also optimistic about passage of whatever is proposed? Well, I think the, the bill will be a fairly strong bill if it uh, follows what has been uh, reported in the press. Uh, I do think we need something uh, like the kind of public accommodations bill, which would uh, uh, prohibit discrimination in any business uh, that is engaged in interstate commerce. I think this is good, and it would do a great deal to end segregation in many of the hotels and restaurants and other businesses throughout the South. And I think that is a great need to speed up the process of public school integration. As I said a few minutes ago, this has really been a frustrating and a very slow process, and uh, something has to be done. Now, if the bill calls for a speed up in the integration process in the schools, I think this will be very good and very helpful. Uh, now, as far as the possibility of passage, I am not optimistic about it passing uh, if certain things aren't done to bring the necessary moral and creative pressure to bear uh, so that congressmen will see the necessity of this. For instance, uh, I think, as I said a few minutes ago, the president himself must do more than issue uh, a call, uh, make certain recommendations. What, what would you recommend he do, Dr. King? Should he give fireside chat on it? Should I think so. I think he should, uh, I think he should give fireside chats on it, and, and I think it, uh, more than one would be necessary. Uh, I think the president should also uh, have conferences with uh, congressmen and get them, try to persuade them to see the necessity of passing this bill. Uh, and I think he would need to talk with certain groups across the country uh, so that it will create a climate of civil rights concern will be created. And people all over the country will be writing their 
senators and their uh, representatives in Congress on this issue. I think these things are absolutely necessary, and I think uh, the, the devotees of civil rights will have to do something. I mean, I think the civil rights leaders and uh, all of the, the Negroes in the country, as well as their allies in the white community, will have to do something. And I don't uh, throw out the idea of the necessity of a march on Washington, uh, even sit-ins in Congress, to get this issue uh, dramatized so much that it cannot be ignored. March on Washington by Negroes and whites? Yes. All I'm, citizens? Yes. I, I'm thinking now of, of all people of goodwill who are concerned about the American dream and the implementation of the basic uh, principles of our democracy. And this would include uh, Negroes and whites. And I think it would have more power uh, if it is an interracial march uh, calling upon our nation bring into being these just laws which will take us on a long, long way toward the American dream. In the recent uh, meeting between James Baldwin, Nina Horn, Harry Belafonte, and other prominent Negroes with the Attorney General, the suggestion was made that the President could make a very dramatic contribution to the issue by taking the University of Alabama Negro applicants to the school himself. The Attorney General was reported to have recoiled at this idea, to have been stunned or horrified or taken aback. Do you think the President of the United States should go to that dramatic degree by way of using the moral power of his office? Yes, I think so. I, uh, I have said uh, on several occasions in recent days that this would be the kind of meaningful act and the kind of dramatic thrust that would make it clear all over the world that we mean business when we talk about uh, basic human rights and democracy and guaranteeing these uh, basic rights to all citizens. Uh, and I think we have come to the point in our nation that we need this kind of moral witness on the part of the highest uh, official and the most respected citizen in our nation. Uh, it, would, it would give a sense of hope to the Negro. It would give a sense of support to uh, the many, many white people of goodwill, North and South, who have been working in this area. And it would do a great deal to lift the image of the United States uh, in the eyes of the world. People of all countries who are looking and they are seeing all of these bad things. But to see this... Uh, as a great moral act would do a great deal, I think, to give us uh, a better image all over the world. Dr. King, we must pause for just a brief moment. We'll be right back.
right thing. And I could point to some of the things that he's done that uh, have been helpful. On the other hand, President Kennedy has not yet given the leadership that the enormity of the problem demands. He has failed to live up to his campaign promises. Uh, he has not uh, gone on record calling for any meaningful civil rights legislation up to now, and if he does uh, in the coming days, uh, we will welcome this, but uh, he has not done it in the past. And of course, uh, there is still the need to use the power of moral persuasion uh, to a greater degree than he has in the past. This is one area where the president has uh, has not moved with, uh, with, with a great sense of urgency. Why has he uh, hedged, do you think? Well, political considerations? I, I, think, uh, I think it, it boils down to a fear of arousing the eye of Southern congressmen, many of whom hold the leadership in basic and important committees in Congress. And uh, it may be the president feels that uh, his other legislative program can't get through if he uh, makes these senators and congressmen too angry on the civil rights issue. Uh, my position has been that uh, this issue is a basic moral issue, I mean, the civil rights issue. And that uh, many of the Southerners are going to take a stand against the president's legislative program, I mean, other phases of his legislative program anyway. And it is better to go down taking a strong moral position than to lose out when you have hedged on a basic moral principle. And uh, I think this is a choice president, he must uh, start now making moral decisions rather than purely political decisions. And I think in the final analysis, uh, he will be supported in the country. It's very seldom that an individual in, in the political world has an opportunity to do that which is morally right and politically expedient uh, simultaneously. But I think this is one issue. Uh, that is morally right on the one hand and politically expedient on the other. I think the president will discover that if he took a forthright, courageous stand on this issue, he would get great support from, from people all over the country, particularly in the big industrial urban areas of the North and the West, that in the final analysis uh, will elect the president. Dr. King, will the coming showdown between Governor Wallace and the federal government on the admission of the two Negro students to the University of Alabama. In your view, will that lead to new violence in Alabama? There are a thousand troops stationed there. The Negro community probably awaits the event. If Governor Wallace were to do a Governor Barnett Act in an attempt to prevent the entry himself physically with his troops, would that lead to an outbreak of new violence? Well, I think there is this danger. There's a real possibility. Now, in recent days, Governor Wallace has backed up a bit, and uh, he has gone on television calling for uh, nonviolence and calling for peace and orderliness. And uh, how much influence this will have?
because he'd been under so much pressure from the political power structure of the state, the economic power structure, the business leaders, and uh, the ecclesiastical power structure. The ministers from all over have said to Governor Wallace, this is the wrong course of action, the attorney general of the state, the lieutenant governor. And I think he's been under so much pressure that uh, he may change his course of action and try to follow through on some token political promise that he made, yet at the same time try to keep violence from erupting. Uh, if this happens, it may, it may be possible to prevent violence. On the other hand, if uh, the governor over the next few days persists in his determination to stand in the door and place the troops, the state troopers of Alabama over against showdown comes between the state and the federal government, there is a danger that the violent forces of the state will uh, become so aroused that they will resort to violence and will unconsciously and consciously feel that they are aided and abetted by Governor Wallace and, and all that they're doing. So it's uh, difficult to say. I think we must realize that it, it, it's a dangerous situation and Governor Wallace has done a grave injustice not only to Alabama but to the whole nation by embarking on such an irresponsible course of action. Dr. King has the pressure of events and the uh, frustration of the Negro in seeking his rights made your philosophy, your doctrine of nonviolence more difficult to, uh, to preach effectively. Uh, are you Within your own people, is there now a militancy that is uh, damaging your your theology of nonviolence? Well, at this point, I don't think so. Uh, I must make it clear that I I don't advocate a weak and uh, a sort of uh, complacent nonviolence. I advocate a militant nonviolence. A, a movement that moves on, a, a resistance movement that does resist, but it does it nonviolently. Now, I am as impatient as anybody about the slow pace of the desegregation process, and I feel that uh, we've got to move on in a very vigorous, forthright, and uh, determined manner. Uh, my only insistence is that it would be both impractical and immoral try to make violence uh, our major thrust or to try to make violence a method that we will use to get to the goal of integration. And I, as I said, I think it's just downright impractical, even if one doesn't take uh, the moral questions under consideration. Now, it is true that uh, because of uh, the failure of the forces of goodwill rally around the democratic ideal and the whole process of integration, uh, many people in the Negro community have become uh, so impatient that they've become bitter. And it is more difficult to uh, get over uh, in a situation like this the, the philosophy of nonviolence. It makes the job much more difficult. When we are moving on and people see this creative outlet, uh, it's easier for them to remain.
remain true to the nonviolent creed. But uh, when things are slow, and even those who are leaders in the nonviolent movement are considered rabble-rousers and agitators, uh, then it does make the job much more difficult to, to get this philosophy over. And uh, I would be the first one to admit that uh, with, the, with the growth of the movement and with it rising to such astronomical proportions in terms of numbers, with all of the communities that are now rising up, it means that we're going to have to uh, spend more times, uh, time and get more hands to help us work in these communities so that we will be sure that uh, at least we've tried to get over the meaning of the whole philosophy of nonviolence. Um, what was your reaction to the reported uh, reaction of Attorney General Kennedy at the were in the New York Times and other reliable papers that the Attorney General was stunned uh, at the extent of militancy, anger, and impatience that he found among these Negro artists. Th was this an ingenuous reaction? Had he so misread the temper of the American Negro? Well, I think this is a, a real possibility, and I think many white people of goodwill uh, many who are even fairly close to the Negro community fail to realize the seriousness of this problem and and the the, the mood of the Negro, the the impatience and the, the discontent of the Negro. I think that uh, many people fail to see this, and it isn't that they are not people of goodwill. On the whole, they understand the depths and dimensions of the but uh, they just haven't been able to see uh, this new determination on the part of the Negro, and the new determination itself has grown out of this uh, impatience and this great discontent, so that I'm not surprised to, uh, to, to know that some left with the conclusion that the Attorney General didn't realize this, because I've seen others who, uh, who have been very concerned about the problem of racial injustice, but somehow had not been able to, to understand or to see this uh, growing militancy uh, in the Negro community. Does the uh, reaction of the Northern and Western Negro uh, against de facto segregation in housing and lack of equal job opportunity contain the same elements of violence potential as we are seeing in the South today? I think so, and some, uh, sometimes even more, uh, because uh, in the South, the, the system of segregation is legal and therefore overt, and it's easier to get at it points. Uh, it's out in the open, so you can tackle it legally, you can tackle it through... Uh, nonviolent demonstrations and other forces, and you can see pockets of progress here and there in the South. Uh, you can look back and say, well, a year ago I couldn't go to the lunch counters, but now we can go. A year ago I couldn't go in the hotels in this particular city, but now I can go. A year ago we could not go in the theaters, but now we can go. So you do see progress uh, at certain levels. It's just token progress, but it, it can be seen. On the north, it's different. The 
since uh, segregation is not legal, uh, it has to be subtle. Uh, it has to be covert. And uh, because of the growing problems around this, often the Negro can only see retrogress. If he lives in a city like Detroit, he recognizes that he's about uh, 28 or 30 percent of the population, and yet almost 70 percent is unemployed. Because of discrimination and the fact that Negroes have been limited to unskilled and semi-skilled labor, a force called automation comes into being, and these are the jobs that pass away, so that uh, the Negroes are the ones who suffer most at this point in the large industrial areas of the North. And I think because of this unemployment, because of uh, the continued existence of the ghetto, and these things are involved together, you see. The evils of employment discrimination and housing discrimination are caught together. If a man doesn't have enough money uh, to live, he certainly can't get adequate housing. And even if he has money, in so many instances, he can't get it. Is he and ready to march, to demonstrate, to uh, uh, do the kind of thing that the Southern Negro has done? Is he at that point? Oh, yes, I, I think so. I've been in several... Uh, northern communities recently, and uh, uh, I would say that the vast majority of Negroes in these communities uh, are so concerned about this issue and so uh, frustrated about it that uh, they are willing now more than ever to take this issue uh, to the point of engaging in mass nonviolent demonstrations. In fact, uh, we've seen some of it Philadelphia in, in recent days where they had uh, mass picketing and mass demonstrations. Some of it even erupted into violence. Now, uh, I think this is a real possibility in cities all over the North where the Negro is just caught up in the crippling shackles of frustration. You see Washington, D.C. as a particular danger point with Malcolm X having moved there with the Negroes being the majority of the population, with job discrimination and ghettoizing being so deeply embedded in the nation's capital, do you see Washington as a particular point of explosion? Well, this is a, uh, this is a community that can explode like many others. Uh, and I don't think it will only be because of Malcolm X moving there. My contention is that if we keep moving and uh, if we can solve the problem by a continued working at it, uh, then Malcolm X and the Muslims won't have any influence. I don't think they've had uh, anywhere as near, I mean, as much influence as uh, many uh, would think. At points, this movement has been a sort of paper tiger. But I would, uh, I would say that these communities, like Washington, and Washington, as you say, is a majority Negro population, has a majority Negro population, these communities can explode into uh, a terrible racial nightmare if something isn't done. And I think it can be warded off by vigorous programs on the part of the federal government and on the part of local state governments. In other words, it will be determined uh, by the degree to which uh, the political leaders and other leaders will meet the problem head on. And 
Washington is a good example. Uh, if the leaders in Washington, backed up by the president, will see the dangerous possibilities and set out to deal with the problem of housing discrimination and employment discrimination, uh, and certainly the Negro confronts this in Washington and all over, uh, then there will be a ray of hope. Now, the president uh, is considering doing something about uh, eliminating discrimination in federal construction programs. Uh, this is just one level, but it, it does represent uh, some progress if he can get an executive order through on that. And uh, this will make new jobs for Negroes. And where you have uh, new jobs, and the Negro sees that he's moving from the periphery of American society to the point of being involved and knowing that he has something to lose, uh, then he will he will not feel the need of uh, responding with violent reactions. Dr. King, we have to pause and come very briefly. We'll be back with more. Dr. King, you have been reported very recently as saying that you no longer fear the Ku Klux Klan or the White Citizen Council as much as you have begun to fear the white moderate, that he is the bone in the throat of Negro progress. Would you implement that statement and tell us what you mean by that? Yes, well, I uh, guess I entered this period. I was uh, catapulted into the leadership of the civil rights struggle during the Montgomery bus boycott, and I entered struggle at that point, having great faith uh, in the moderates in the white community, feeling that uh, the moderates would understand and that we would have uh, great allies in our struggle from uh, the so-called moderates. But uh, in recent years, I've come to see that uh, these are often the people who stand in the way of progress because they are committed only in a lukewarm manner. And uh, every time you move to try to solve the problem, uh, they will respond by saying, uh, you're moving too fast, you ought to cool off, you should put on brakes. And they end up more devoted to order than to justice, and uh, are more devoted to maintaining a sort of negative peace, which is merely the absence of tension than uh, gaining a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. And uh, they can always say to you that you should wait for a more convenient season. And I've come to see that these are the people that uh, often stand in the way because they get close, uh, close enough to you to at least uh, uh, discuss your plans, and uh, uh, they become friendly enough to uh, to talk with you, you at least have dialogue with them, but uh, they, they want to stand in the way of every move forward, and this has been my disappointment. I, I think at times it is better to have uh, uh, outright rejection and misunderstanding from people of ill will than to have lukewarm acceptance from people of goodwill. It is better to have absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will than to have partial understanding from people of goodwill. And uh, this is what we're seeing every day in our struggle uh, in the South, that 
many of the moderates of the white South and, and many of them mean well. And I shouldn't only say the South, uh, but uh, the moderates all over stand in the way of progress because they refuse to understand the, the problem and they live by the myth of time, uh, failing to realize that time will not solve the problem. And there's a danger that the moderate will live by this myth, believing that if you just leave things alone and not push too much, uh, time will solve the problem. And it has always been my contention that this is an invalid view because it goes out with the idea that that is something in the very nature and structure of time that will miraculously solve all problems. And time really is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. And at times, I think the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. Many student experienced observers of the Washington scene described the mood of the administration in the area of racial relations as one of bleak despair because they feel, the administration say these reporters, that they cannot possibly legislate or executive order or innovate enough, fast enough, to accommodate the surging uh, expectations and want of the Negro community that they could not possibly keep up with the appetite for progress that the Negroes want in this country. Would you comment on that? Well, I, I think uh, they can. I, I don't think that despair needs to exist. Uh, I think the administration must recognize that the harvest of disruption that we now see over the country is here because of seeds of inaction planted uh, over the last several years. If, for instance, the president had uh, taken a real stand on the moral issues of integration in 1954 after the Supreme Court rendered its decision, things would be different now. But because of the failure of President Eisenhower to take a, a forthright moral stand a vacuum set in, and the forces of opposition were able to organize and crystallize the opposition, and this set us back for a period. I think the new administration will have to see the necessity uh, of making up. It's just as simple as he who gets behind in a race must forever remain behind or run faster uh, than the man in front. And we've got to see that uh, we have gotten behind in the race of really following through on the executive and the legislative levels, even on the things that have been done through the judicial branch of the government. Now, I think through a combination of efforts, uh, this problem can be solved. I think the new administration must see the necessity of moving through executive orders, through legislative channels, and through moral persuasion. And I always keep that at the forefront because uh, I think there's a great deal that can be done here. I was in India some few years ago, and I spent a good deal of time studying the problem of caste untouchability, which is quite similar to uh, our problem here. And I, it was very interesting to me to notice that India had made much more progress in grappling with this problem than we've made. And I came to the conclusion that this progress had been made 
for two or three reasons. First, when the new nation came into being, when they received independence, it was placed in the Constitution that uh, to discriminate against an untouchable was a crime punishable by imprisonment. But not only that, India always had great symbols standing up in a moral way against it. For instance, Mahatma Gandhi ad adopted an untouchable as his daughter against the will even of his wife. And when I was in India some six weeks, Prime Minister Nehru made four different speeches in which he morally condemned caste untouchability. And yet we very seldom, if ever, hear the President of the United States speaking to the nation on the moral issues of integration. When they speak, it's usually, this is the law and we must obey the law. We are a nation of laws and not men. Never saying that James Meredith should go to the University of Mississippi because integration is right and because he's your brother. Uh, and I think that with all of these forces working together, the legislative, the executive, and moral persuasion on the part of the president, we can do this catching up. But the danger is that we will just do a few token things here and there, and it's just like applying Vaseline to a cancer. We must move away from the approach of tokenism and see the necessity for a vigorous program. Dr. King, Mr. James Baldwin has emerged very recently as um, an important spokesman for the Negro community in America. I'm sure you would attest to his eloquence and his brilliance, but I wonder whether you feel he does damage with such remarks as his comment on the black Muslims. It's the only movement in the country you can call grassroots. I hate to say that, but it's true. They talk and articulate for all the Negroes. They articulate their suffering. Or this comment on you, on Martin Luther King, a rare and great man. He has great moral authority in the South. He's gone through hell to awaken the American conscience, but he has reached the end of the road. Martin is undercut by the country. 